I am Hannah Riley Bowles. Hi, welcome. Uh, thank you for coming through the uh, wet, sloppy, cold weather. Um, I am the research director here at the Women in Public Policy program, where we are focused on closing gender gaps in the areas of economic and politi political participation, health, and education. And uh, I am honored to get to introduce our uh, speaker today. Uh, Kathleen, Professor Kathleen McGinn from Harvard Business School is the Connors Robb Professor of Business Administration at, at HBS, as I just said, and she's um, chair of the, uh, the doctoral programs. She has been uh, previously director of research and senior associate dean for, for faculty development over there. Um, Kathleen is a very close and well-loved friend of the Women in Public Policy program, um, has been a mentor of mine for many years. and. Um, and we are just thrilled to have you here. Kathleen's research is, um, she's come out of the uh, negotiation realm and she's now focusing a lot on uh, career paths within um, professional service firms. And today she's going to present some work in progress, which is really fun that we'll get to see something that's not um, all finished. Last week we had a book that was already out, so this is a nice <laughs> shift extreme. in perspective. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at the beginning stage. We'll have an opportunity, Kathleen welcomes questions as she presents. Um, she's also asked, which I think is actually a really nice idea, um, that as people raise their hand, if they could just um, give just like one, you know, sentence, half a sentence on who they are, so she can have some perspective on the background from where your question is coming. And uh, be uh, warned, prepared, joyous that you're being recorded for um, uh, I iTunes, yes. Okay, good. <laughs> this is my first iTunes show. Um, so I want to first introduce my co-author on this, Myra Ruiz Castro, who is here with us. Um, and uh, so there may be times when I turn to Myra for things. Uh, so thank you very much for the introduction. It's wonderful to be here. And it's hard not to be a supporter of WAP because I think um, as we try to move into a world where the underrepresentation of women, the gender gap around employment, <laughs> the gender gap around earnings, the unequal distribution of uh, allocation of household work. As we try to change all of those things, I think WAP is um, potentially the biggest player on campus and, and as a result of that, one of the biggest players in the world. So it's an honor to be here. Thank you very much. Um, as Hannah talked about, my research has evolved in a way that now has me focused almost entirely on gender and employment. But not gender and employment um, for its own sake, but thinking about the ways in which gender as a social institution is changing and how changes in that social institution are affecting gender, are affecting men's and women's lives, are affecting families that they live in, are affecting the organizations in which they work, the professions they hold, and the communities that they participate in and develop. So if we think about gender as a social institution, you can think about it like other social institutions, like family, for example, or like religion. So I am a woman. I am also a wife. I am a mother. I am a Catholic. I am a professor. I am many things that have to do with the social institutions in which I'm embedded. And all of those do a few things. First of all, they in many ways define what's acceptable behavior for me. And that we can see, but in a, 
in a somewhat more hidden and potentially insidious way, they define how I think. And they define the way people think about me. So when we look at gender, we tend to look at gender as something that's held within the individual. And yet as I go about my research, I think about gender as something that's held um, in the large, in society, in communities, in families, in organizations, in couples, and in individuals. And so that's the, that's the background for this work. Um, Mara and I originally started talking about some research that I'll um, mention at the very end that we're engaging in in Mexico. Uh, but in the process of doing that, we wanted to investigate um, outside of the US, how do you think about, or how does the world think about gender and how do those things affect careers? Uh, that's the literature I'm gonna talk about today. Um, this is, as Hannah said, really, really, truly, truly um, in progress. Um, so Mara and I are still cleaning the data, we're still um, running analyses, so we had our hypotheses laid out many, many months ago, um, but as you'll see, the data takes a lot of work. And so any questions along the way, um, anything that you think we should think about differently, um, whether it's analyses or literatures to speak to, um, anything at all, just sort of raise your hand and um, as Hannah said, sort of say who you are and please let us, let us know your thoughts. So, um, Gender inequality at work and at home reflects lots of variables. Variables at the individual level, like gender attitudes. Variables at the household level, like <coughs> what your spouse does, how much education your spouse has, how many children you have, how, old you, how, um, how many adults are in the household, et cetera. It also reflects um, the environment in which you sit. So it reflects the organizations that you're in, and it reflects the culture that you're in. So we're gonna think about culture at the country level. Um, in this study, we don't have anything about organizations, so we're gonna look at that in a subsequent study. In this study, we really think about the environment in which you're in being at the, at the societal level. All of these things affect employment outcomes, and they also affect health and happiness. So we're gonna look at those, um, at those variables. We're gonna to try to simultaneously explore these variables and their effect on the outcomes. Um, and, and the lens that we use for this is a lens of inter-household <coughs> bargaining. Um, so what Hannah didn't mention um, when she introduced me is that the whole reason that I study gender at all is because I worked with Hannah. So um, Hannah first came and wanted to study gender and bargaining, um, and I worked with her on that work. And as we moved into that, where I came out from it was that um, the larger forces on gender really lie outside of the bargaining table. So. So what we found was that situational <coughs> factors really drive what happens at the bargaining table. And so I continued to move further and further out. One of the pieces that I did with Hannah was a piece on what we call two-level games that really introduced us to inter-household bargaining. And there is a large literature on this. Uh, and inter-household bargaining is a way of thinking about what are the processes through which decisions are made in terms of responsibilities 
and in terms of the allocation of resources. So if you look at responsibilities, um, this is from 2010 uh, UN report. If you look at the responsibilities held at home, you can see that women across the world do at least twice as much at home as men do. Um, and this is in spite of the fact that over 50% of women across the world are also employed um, and that across the world women are gaining and in many countries have jumped over men in terms of educational attainment. There's some more chairs up here if you guys want to feel free to come on up. So the, so the question is, how do we think about the intra-household bargaining that plays into how this occurs? So um, Becker in the 60s and then again in the 80s wrote about um, intra-household bargaining from an economist modeling point of view. And there's a number of things about that model that economists have been revisiting um, and other scholars have been revisiting in the decades since. But the model holds as a way to start thinking about intra-household bargaining. So he models it as essentially a unitary body. So that has been clearly um, disproven. So if you think about anything that goes on at home, the idea that everyone at home agrees exactly on preferences and the desired outcome seems absurd on its face. Um, and so, so that was done away with rather quickly. So we can think about inter-household bargaining as having literally a sort of negotiation bargaining lens to it in that people bring in different preferences, people bring in different amounts of ed education, people bring in different amounts of information, and critically for bargaining, people have different uh, amounts of power usually defined by their alternatives outside. And so when we think about things like the allocation of work inside the household, we're going to have to make sure that we look at things like how much education do you have relative to your spouse um, and, and other things that would, in many ways, define your outside alternatives. The other way in which that model is problematic is that it assumes, even if we have different interests and preferences, it assumes that we are self-interested when we're making these, um, when we're engaging in these negotiations. And if you, again, think about your own um, sort of intra-household bargaining, your own life at home, the idea that every decision you make that has implications for the household, your input in it is based on your own self-interest is, again, um, on its face wrong. Much of what we do at home is guided not by self-interest but by love, not by trying to get as much as I can for myself, but trying to maximize the value for the whole household. Not every decision, we all know that too, <laughs> but many. And so if we think about intra-household bargaining as a bargaining game, we have to really expand the utility structure that people are using in that bargaining game. So for that, if we want to look at how things play out in intra-household bargaining, we're going to have to consider things like how many children do you have? And where do you live? So how much money do you need to have to live? Are there other adults in the household, et cetera? So we're going to consider those things, but our model is going to focus on this idea that what happens in the allocation of household tasks is going to mediate a lot of these um, independent variables around demographics, household characteristics, spousal characteristics, and country characteristics. Let me just give you a heads up that we're probably wrong. Um, 
<laughs> that's our model. Um, and it's, it's not going to play out exactly that way, but this is the way that we've been, we've been thinking about this. Um, so gender attitudes, mm. and you can think about these as um, attitudes about beliefs about what's right about gender, about what people should do, about how gendered relationships should play out. Um, you can think about gender attitudes from traditional to egalitarian. So in a traditional view, men are breadwinners, women are homemakers, um, and they sort of all live happily ever after. Um, in a more egalitarian view, what we see is that there's an assumption that both the work outside the home and the work inside the home, as well as the pleasures outside the home and the pleasures inside the home, should be shared in a much more equal manner. Um, it's some work that I've done with um, Lakshmi Ramarajan and Debbie Kolb. We found that this is a rather simplistic way to think about um, gender. That over the last 20 years, what's happened is that we've moved away from this traditional view of gender and we, we think of it as a logic of gender, we gradually moved into a logic that said, wait a minute, things are really biased. So we no longer accepted that this traditional view is right. We said this traditional view is often held, but it's wrong. It shouldn't be held. So there was a real um, moving away from an assumption of the happily ever after part of the traditional logic. And it gradually moved into by the late 90s into a logic of underrepresentation. So we've thrown away or largely discarded the beliefs underlying the traditional logic. We're dealing with the biases that came from sort of moving away from that logic over time. And what we really need to work on is the underrepresentation of women in roles of power, in roles with voice, in roles that can change <coughs> organizations in society. Toward the change of the millennium, what we saw was that we are moving away from that, and the discussion of underrepresentation is fading as we take on a logic that says, wait a minute, this is all about the intersection of life at home and life at work. And so the, if you think about egalitarian <coughs> attitudes, in some ways that says what we should be aiming for, what is the right thing to strive for is some sort of equality. And yet the underlying logic is that we're certainly not there. And getting there is not just a question of bias, and it's not just a question of getting the numbers up. It's a question of fundamentally reshaping how we think about what goes on at work and what goes on at home. Um, there have been um, some studies, some with a uh, similar data set to what we're using, um, that shows that women with more egalitarian attitudes earn more. Um, it's hard to disentangle cause and effect there. Um, so if you're out in the workplace, you're likely to hold different attitudes than if you're at home full time. Um, Conrad and Corrigal also have a longitudinal study, this is just in the US, where they do show that um, your gender attitudes in the age between 19 and 22 then predict uh, women's earnings and hours in the workplace um, for women in their 30s. This doesn't hold true for men um, for lots of reasons that we'll explore in our data as well. Um, what's interesting is that the connections between gender attitudes have been and work has been shown in a few places, but the connections between gender attitudes and the house, allocation of household work 
has been shown totally aside from thinking about how that might then leap on to um, leap on to the outcomes outside of work. So I think I've talked about most of these. The critical piece is that we're thinking about negotiations at home as providing an opportunity for women and for men to renegotiate the terms of the gendered roles, to in some ways deconstruct and then reconstruct um, gender identities in a very different way. Uh, so, so part of what uh, makes the intra-household bargaining model false is that people, as Weston Zimmerman talked about, do gender at home in a way that they don't do gender at work. And so one of the interesting findings out of this literature, and this is a single study, but it gets cited a lot, and we're hoping that we can um, figure out in our data whether it holds now and across countries. But one of the findings by um, Bittman and England et al. is that the, once women's income goes up above um, their spouse's income, men's contribution to household work actually starts to go down again. Uh, so again, it's a single study. Um, it's over a decade old. We're going to be able to investigate that in our data. But it does look like um, there's a way of dealing with gender inside the household that's played back and forth between um, what's going on in the marketplace and what's going on at home. So, so this is our model. Um, we have demographics at the individual level. We have household characteristics like um, how many adults are in the household, how many children in the household. Um, we have partner characteristics um, in terms of spousal education, um, spousal employment. And then we have, um, <coughs> at this point, we're using country fixed effects. So we're working diligently on trying to, um, instead of using country fixed effects, to really use indicators of social and economic um, egalitarianism at the country level. And toward the end, I'd love your um, input on that. Uh, and, and finally, we have gender attitudes. I'll talk more about that. Um, we're assuming that all of these feed into intra-household bargaining and that those are going to affect happy, happiness and health as well as career outcomes. So I'm going to get a sip of water. You guys are stunningly quiet. Any questions at this point? <laughs> I have a question. So how come in this model that you're showing, career outcomes don't go back and impact the intra-household bargaining? could think of, well, they could, right? So, so there's a huge question um, that Danielle's pointing to in terms of endogeneity. We are going to use a cross-sectional sample here. Um, there's endogeneity all over the place. Uh, we're going to try to deal with that with some identification variables. Um, it's not perfect. Um, and certainly this is going to feed into um, inter-household bargaining, and we're going we're to see that. So. Uh, what we haven't done yet and what we really need to do is really set up a full hierarchical linear model so that we can try to tease those apart and we haven't. Um, but one way to think about this is that in the short run, these things can be thought of as exogenous to one another, so everything's sort of fixed so we can think about how they play into one another. In the long run, certainly everything, um, with potentially the exception of demographics, um, 
has endogeneity to it over the long run. Um, this is, they have collected these data in 2002, they've collected it again in 2012, those data aren't out yet. <coughs> um, and so we hope that we're gonna be able to look a little bit into that. Other questions? Okay. So the data come from the 2002 International Social Survey Program, which is run out of of NGO in Germany. Um, this is the module on family gender roles. The ISSP carries out surveys on a regular basis. Um, and for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, they have um, cross-national surveys on a whole bunch of different topics. So each couple years they have a different topic. The way the surveys are conducted is they um, they work to have a fully representative within country sample for each one of their countries. The surveys are carried out in person through um, an interview technique, and so there is um, a much richer and uh, sort of more nuanced set of data that's available through this than you could get through a lot of surveys. Um, these are the participating countries. Um, what you would see there if you looked really closely is that North America, Central America, um, and Europe are heavily represented. There is a little bit in Asia um, and nothing in Africa and I think nothing in Latin America outside of Central America. So, so while it's international, it's not the world. Uh, so, so let me just give you a feel for the variables that we are thinking really play into this part of the model. So we have, and, and we're providing just the means and to give you a little bit of feel for where these data sit in our sample. So it's a little bit over half women. Um, the age range from 15 to 96 for our analyses, we hold it to um, 18 or over and 65 or under so that we're looking at the working population. Um, as you can see, they're not it's not a highly educated sample, but um, there's a good range around that. We were very interested in the effect of a working mother because that doesn't have this endogeneity issue. Um, you'll see what the results are of being a working mother. I think we got some problems. We got to figure this out. But um, so, so we look at that, and I think that that's a real critical characteristic. Um, in terms of household characteristics, as I mentioned, we look at um, adults, children, married, living together, and then we have a Demi for whether you live in a city, because um, that's going to have a lot to do with your income. And then we have partner characteristics as well. For gender attitudes, there are um, about 25 gender attitudes questions that are asked in the survey. Unlike previous work, there's a little bit of previous work that has been done on these data. Basically, what that work does is sort of take one of the variables. Um, Conrad has one paper that um, sort of picks out five. We ran a full factor analysis with all of the variables. Um, these four factors um, predict about 90% and hang together nicely. And what you can see is there is a couple that are, you can think of as more traditional. So women should stay at home and that's the only traditional. And the rest of them are much more egalitarian. And these are the questions that go into each of them. Um, most of them were on a one to five scale. 
these were all presented as um, women should work not at all part-time, full-time, so it's a three-point scale. At this point, we're taking, um, we're, we're not using factor loadings. We're basically treating all of these the same, even though they don't load exactly the same. So those are our gender attitudes. And our measure of intra-household bargaining is really the outcome of intra-household bargaining, and that's the distribution of household work. So they ask six questions, actually. In addition to laundry, health care, shopping, cleaning, and cooking, they ask who does. And the one that doesn't fit in terms of the factor score is um, repairs. So household repairs, surprisingly, um, is unsurprisingly, is orthogonal to these. Um, as you can, so it works from always the woman to always the man. Um, as you can see, always the man almost never shows up. Um, so basically, this ranges basically from one to four, um, and the means are always toward always the woman. There's a little bit of difference between the reporting of men and the reporting of women. So unsurprisingly, men report that they do a little bit more, um, <laughs> as, as we've seen in some other studies. Um, but it's not, it's actually not huge. Yes? Is it significantly different from the means? I assume it's going to be different from three. Three is about equal across the gamut, no? Uh, so they're definitely not. That's right. So if you look, if you look at the mode, yes. the mode for both men and for women is about equal. Okay. Um, one complicating factor, but it is um, the way the question was asked, is <coughs> a third party is also considered about equal. So, so, and again, if you, these are not on average rich households, but. In many countries, there is someone else that does a lot of these, and that's considered about equal. So it, it looks pretty good, actually. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it varies quite a bit across countries. Um, if you think about the alpha across countries, it ranges from about 0.5 to about 0.75. Um, so so there is some there is some variety. Um, I was actually surprised. So out of the countries, there's only two. Um, for which uh, it's not significantly more, le sort of more likely to be women, and that's Mexico and Slovenia. Uh, the country that's most egalitarian is, anyone want to take a guess? Sweden. Hmm? Sweden. I would, yes, I would have guessed something like that. It's Russia. Um, <laughs> so so we, we, have some, we have some nice range on this. There are differences between men and women, but it's much more, so it's highly significant, I'm less than 0.0001. <coughs> um, but nonetheless, it's much less different than we might expect it to be. Okay. What, so what is significant, say again? Yeah. The difference is between men and women. But, but if this is? Um, reporting. Uh, what they report. What they report, yep. What yep. they report. So, so when we look at the effects of demographics, household characteristics, partner characteristics, and gender attitudes, um, we're predicting 
about 30% for women, about 40% of the variance for men. Um, notice that this, whole, this has country fixed effects in there. The, when, when we add gender attitudes in after all of controls, it predicts not too much of more of the variance. It's about 3%. Um, it's a little bit more for women than it is for men. But you'll see that what we, what we would expect is here. So women should stay at home um, makes it more likely, I'm sorry, less likely that men do household work. Both parents should work makes it more likely men do household work. And what um, we thought most interesting is that in households where um, the male says men should contribute more, um, they actually do more of the work. In households where the women says men should contribute more, um, women are doing more of the work. This, but this goes to Danielle's sort of what's leading to what here. So if you think about the question, the question is men ought to do more household work. Men ought to do more childcare. So there's a question of are you complaining or, or are you stating your sort of egalitarian attitudes? And for men, they're stating their egalitarian attitudes. For women, um, there may be a little bit of um, if only in there. So, so it looks like in households where um, women want men to do more, it's because they're doing less, which makes sense. So, so there is clearly effective gender attitudes on intra-household bargaining. Um, but when we look at the outcomes on um, employment and health, health and happiness, we're going to find that this does not mediate any of these um, gender attitude effects. Any questions on this one? Okay. So we look at um, three different career outcomes. I'm only going to talk about working and average earnings right now. Um, so we look at whether they're um, working not at all, less than part-time, part-time, or full-time. Um, for women, 58% of them report working at one of those levels. Male, 75% report working at one of those levels. Yeah? So there's nothing, no generation differences either in the data or Oh, certainly. Yeah, so age is huge, hugely, hugely predictive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to control for age. Yeah. How do you control for maternity leave? Because uh, you have some country where it's paid. And you still consider it to be working, but you're actually not working. Yeah. So we have country fixed effects in there. So it's absorbed into the country fixed effects. But um, in our next step, and we'll talk about the variables that we're going to put in on the last slide, but in the next look at these data, what we're going to do is replace the country fixed effects with measures like <coughs> maternity leave, like representation of women in the political sphere, like divorce rates, et cetera which really get at, um, in some sense, the outside alternatives for women. So it, we're going to put it in. Right now, it's just sort of sucked up into the country fixed effects. I'm just curious, with the um, working women, uh -huh. how does it include um, non-paid productive activities, so subsistence lifestyles or things like that? Yeah, so if you look at the population that self-reports working, there is a small portion of that population that self-reports zero income. So those are included in working. If they self-report themselves as working, even if their income is zero, they're included in working. But it's a very small number. It's a, it's a few hundred of the um, 
essentially 11,000 or so that'll be in the sample. How is the question asked? Was it the site to be worked? Do you remember the exact wording of the question? For, for um, employment status? Um, what's your current employment status, actually? And then there is a list of um, employed full-time, part-time, uh, unemployed, and it's like 11 answers. <coughs> Um, on average earnings, we look at only the working population. So we control for whether they're working or not. And for those who are working, um, we look at the effects of gender attitudes and intra-household bargaining on their earnings. Um, unsurprisingly, in this data set, as in um, every data set, <laughs> <I've been laughs> there's, there's a gender gap in earnings um, across all 34 countries. Um, women earn roughly 70% of men, but that's that varies quite a bit across the countries. If we look at outcomes here, what you'll see, and this is to the age question, um, age is hugely predictive. So these um, represent one is significant at 0.05, two is significant at less than, less than 0.01, um, three is significant at less than 0.001. Um, because we have such a high number of observations, we don't even think about anything that's significant at a level less than or higher than 0.05. And even at 0.05, I think we want to think of these as um, marginal effects. Um, so age is huge, hugely predictive, unsurprising. So it's predicting how much they earn if they're working, but it's not predicting whether they're working or not. Um, and it may be that if we put in the quadratic for that, which um, we haven't tried, that you might get something for the quadratic. Um, but we know that people are less likely to work when they're really young and when they're really old, even though we're um, capping it to 18 to 65. If you look at years in school for both men and women, and surprisingly that increases their earnings, it also increases the likelihood that women are going to work, but not the likelihood that men are going to work. The, as, you'll, as you can see here, we're predicting only 5% of whether men work or not, um, and over 16% of whether women work or not. And that's because, by and large, men work. Um, and there's a much greater variance of whether women work or not. If we, um, and again, with these, you really want to think about, is this the way we would expect it to be? So if you're married, men are much more likely to work. Um, women are less likely to work if they're married. It doesn't affect men's, or women's earnings, it does affect men's earnings. Um, is there a? There's no point in it. Sort of like a random screen. thing, huh? Yeah, it the screen is working. Ah. Um, adults in the household, so if there are more people in the household, there's less of pressure on you to earn more money. Um, it makes it more likely that women can work, and again, you can think about this as reducing the load of work within the household for the woman. So if you live with your parents or with your in-laws, you can go to work in a way that you can't if you're um, working on your own. And it reduces the likelihood of employment if you're, um, if you're a male. The, uh, whether your spouse works affects women and doesn't affect men. Um, and it only affects women in terms of how much they earn. It doesn't affect whether they're working or not. Um, years in school, this is, and, and this is back to the endogeneity issue. So, um, people with higher earning potentials are married to people with higher earning potential. Um, and so, unsurprisingly for both men and women, um, if you're a high earner, you're married to 
I'm someone who has lots of education. I just think that the fact that spouse works has a positive influence on women's earnings is just really kind of interesting. Because, well, I mean, what is that? How do you, or how do you interpret that? If I you're mean, married to an unemployed man, you probably earn less than if you're married to an employed man. This is between subjects, right? So you're in many ways really looking at. Oh, this is household earnings, not. This is individual earnings. So if you're married to an unemployed guy, why would you earn less than if you're? you're just a lower socioeconomic status. You're just a lower SES person. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So, and controlling for all of these, now we want to look at gender attitudes. And if we first look at employment status, what we see is that, um, as you would predict, the belief that women should stay at home, if women hold that belief, they're more likely to stay at home, so they're less likely to work. Um, and the more egalitarian beliefs strongly predict their likelihood of working. Um, this is not so true for men. So the only thing that is predictive of whether men are likely to work or not is that um, they believe that everybody, if there are no kids around, everybody should be working. Um, but by and large, gender attitudes are much less influential on men's choices than they are on women's choices around employment. Yep. I guess that's what I was generic happiness sort of um, how happy are you outcome that we have not looked at yet we're looking at outcomes that have more to do with work life so both of these are factors and both of them have both work and life in them and we look only again at people who are actually working um, so 
we reverse scored this. These, these questions are somewhat odd. The way the question's worded is, um, my life at home is rarely stressful. Um, <laughs> sort of sets you around. Uh, so we took those scores, reverse scored them so that they can sort of think of it as a stress variable, and this is a satisfaction variable. And, and this goes back to what the means are. You know, they're, they're pretty happy. Um, and, and these are already reverse scored. They're pretty stressed. Well, this is not too bad stressed. So when we look at these results, um, and again, we present them separately as opposed to the interaction, um, what you can see is that, again, many of the demographics matter. By and large, they matter the same for men and for women in terms of satisfaction. In terms of stress, unsurprisingly, the household characteristics are quite different for men and for women. Um, so that these, this idea that you're married leads to stress for men and doesn't lead to stress for women. Um, number of children greatly increases the stress for women and doesn't increase the stress. Again, this is 0.05 in a very big sample um, for men. If we look at gender attitudes here, what we see is that gender attitudes um, are predicting in different ways for men and for women. So this is back to, <coughs> excuse me, this is back to this question of this is a sort of dissatisfaction measure and this is an egalitarian measure. Um, and we see it reflected again here. So women are more stressed when they think men should do more and men are less stressed when they think men should do more. <laughs> the, the other piece that I think um, was our primary question when we started is when we now add in inter-household bargaining and look at the effects of that, what we see is that inter-household bargaining, the more the man does, the less satisfied he is at work and at home. And the more the man does, the more the woman is satisfied. Um, this is, again, I think reflecting the way the question is worded. So we, and, and we've mentioned a number of these, we really want to look at um, moving away from fixed effects to seeing what is it that's going on in the country that's driving these differences by country. Um, we'll hopefully, we don't know what the data look like yet, hopefully in 2012 they'll ask similar questions. We'll be able to run um, country level data at that. I don't expect that they're actually surveying the same people, um, but again, we don't, we don't have those data yet. Um, and Mara and I and um, a co-author in Mexico are working with 10 companies in Mexico to essentially look at this and look at intra-workplace bargaining as an additional variable. Yeah? I'm not sure about a lot of those countries, but I know that for some European countries, those gender attitude questions that, as you mentioned, they are included in a couple of household panel data sets. Mm -hmm. So I know for sure um, that it's the case for Switzerland and Germany, like mm -hmm. the Swiss household panel and the German socioeconomic panel. Mm -hmm. They have exactly these mm -hmm. um, gender attitudes, and it, it's, a, it's a household panel data set over oh, a 10 year time period. I'm not sure if that would be yeah. useful, yeah. and I'm not sure if they have that for more than just a handful of European countries, yeah. but because it's exactly the same questions. Yeah. I know, for Switzerland, I know for sure it's 2004 until 2012, every year, representative households all over the country. Germany, I, I don't know how many years that would be, but I could, I could, I could check that. Yeah. And do they have the earnings and health and happiness they outcomes as well? They have earnings, they have health, they have happiness. So it's self-assessed oh, health, it's um, happiness, and it's 
you have the entire household structure, so you mm -hmm. know the age of the children and how many adults and yeah. also where they live and income and social transfers and pretty much everything. Great. And it's publicly available data, so you, can just, you just have to request it. Fantastic. Yeah, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. see, whether, see whether it shows us something different. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Yes. Mm -hmm. I guess question slash comment. Um, also, you, you noticed, you note here that the new ISSB data is supposed to be coming out next bargaining. Mm -hmm. So I think she um, tells the most comprehensive, interestingly, still causal story, um, and, and in many ways has guided the way we're thinking about it. Do you have, do you have a, as you're, are you looking at the ISSP data? Uh, I'd like to when it comes out. Um, <laughs> I, I'm doing research mostly on Latin America and 
so and in southern Europe as well, so that's what I hear about everywhere. Um, that's why I know about it. And do you have a causal story that you're going to test? Uh, well, I'm sort of looking at uh, women in advancement in mm -hmm. particular, not just uh, women in the labor force. And I have a couple different projects without going into excruciating detail. I, I think that there's different causal stories for female labor force participation in general, and then advancement is separately. And I think that that depends uh, yeah, yeah. On, on policies a little bit. So I can be talking about that. know the sex of the interviewer um, it's it's hard to imagine that that could be dry I mean these are these are just very 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 strong effects um, but we were hoping um, in terms of instrumental variables we were hoping that mother worked was going to be a big driver of gender attitudes and it just turns out that it's not um, so um, so we are in search of instrumental variables um, and, and in order for it to be useful, it has to be outside of the sort of endogeneity circle. Um, and there aren't very many things that are. Mm. What were you going to say? No, I, I was just thinking that maybe mother working is not a very good interview because it's also related to maybe a hot comparable. Um, no, it's whether whether your mother worked yeah. instead of looking it's at the attitudes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's got to be exogenous to yeah. sort of it, it can't be feeding on um, your career choices, yeah. but it doesn't, it, it's not predictive enough. I mean, it's not tied enough to the attitude variables. I wonder if you can look at mother worked across class, because sort of what oh, you're saying is true. entry into the labor force, right? Mm -hmm. If her mother worked because she was in poverty, that may not have a particular oh, impact yeah. on your gender, or, or a different impact, yeah. than if your mother worked because she was a professional idea, and wanted yeah. to. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. And it may also be this mother worked cohort issue. Right. That we could look at as well. Right. If your mother worked and you have an older cohort, you're probably poor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Can I change the idea? Yes. Also, I was just thinking about the seeing the mother being stressed at home. Like we're seeing mm -hmm. that people are stressed yeah. when they're working. Yeah. So I wonder if separating out those effects, like if if I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you would do yeah. that, but. So we have the respondent stress. We don't right. have the mother stress. <laughs> <laughs> interesting to think about trying to create an interaction variable as, yeah. as an instrumental variable. I hadn't even thought of this. Uh, can I just add on to that? I also see papers looking at um, fathers, uh, <coughs> men, whether his mother worked. Yes. So you might want to... Yeah, that's in here. Okay. So we look at men and women. Um, and, and the prior uses of this data set largely looked at women or um, what they were looking at sort of being men or for men. We're, we're not seeing those those sort of stark differences between men and women, but mother worked actually is one of the ones that differs between the two. Yes, are you looking at when wo when a woman was a working mom alone and then being married, you likely to stop working? Yeah, so we don't have anything about their parental, the respondent's parents' marriage status. So we don't know, is, this is why it would be interesting to mix with, we do have a measure of social status 
Um, so they, on a scale of one to 10, self-report what they see as their social status. Um, we could interact that with um, Mother Works, but we don't have anything about the mother except whether she worked or not. I just have a small technical question going back to what Paula was asking about maternity leave. Mm -hmm. um, in some European countries, it can be quite long, up to three years. Mm -hmm. So if you caught somebody who was a year and a half into their three-year maternity leave, would they be classified as employed or unemployed? They're it's, on contract, but yeah. they're not actively working at the time. It's self-reporting. Okay. So um, I don't know enough about the way these things are perceived in those countries to report that. It, it's a really good question, and we we can control for by country on the amount of maternity leave. Um, right now, we're thinking about using it as a composite of the of the policies that are sort of pro egalitarian, um, but we we could separate that out. Um, but I don't I don't know that. Oh, you know what though? We <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things we have is we have their age, right? And there is sort of this like age thing to pregnancy. Um, and so we could look at the implications for just those who are sort of beyond that age. It then goes back to this cohort effect, but it would be really interesting to see if we still get that in that, um, which suggests a whole another level of interactions. All right. I was. Um, I, I was drawn, can I take you back to the beginning of your talk? Sure. And you were talking about logics of, um, logics of gender, you know, and how they've kind of evolved. Yeah. And I was thinking, listening to you, and this goes back to the cohort, trying mm -hmm. back to the cohort thing, but I was thinking, listening to you, um, uh, one, one thing, and then tie it back to the age cohort thing, was that, you know, maybe that's really a logic of elites within corporations. I mean, like, I'm not really sure that, like, I buy, your, I love that story, and it comes out of that beautiful data that I'm familiar with, but I'm not sure how far-reaching that logic is, and even whether it reaches, you know, whether it's, like, seeping into, you know, male breadwinner households as much as, you know, yeah. female contributor households. So I don't know whether, like, I, I buy your logic, and I was just wondering, going back to cohort effects and to your model for this study, do you have ideas or sort of emergent theory about, you know, maybe whether there's a shifting logic that's influencing, you know, your current model? Yeah, so, so the, um, the data that we use to find the gender logics is U.S.-centric, but it's not um, class-centric. So it's across um, seven different periodicals, um, I mean, it includes things like the Wall Street Journal, um, but also the New York Times, et cetera. So, so that isn't just within organizations. Okay. So I think that the gender logics that um, we find are across American society, because it's just in the US, but I think it's absolutely an open question whether those logics prevail in other countries. If you, if you look at, for example, um, the World Report on Women that came out in 2010. Um, that is very much in the logic of work family. So, so as you as you go through, basically they're saying there's um, this much of a gender gap here, there's this much poverty, there's this much this, and they say, 
you know, so much of this is attributed to um, the different roles that people play at home. Um, there <coughs> is still, and, and we find this in the US too, there is, it's not as if the logic of traditionalism is gone, or the logic of bias is gone, or underrepresentation is gone, and work-family conflict is all there is. Those other bias, those other logics hold, but they're less um, prevalent at this point in time. And I'm certain that in uh, other countries, that's you know, there are different points in time in, in, in that evolution. This was in 2002. And it was, 2002 was very much part of the cusp of moving away from underrepresentation and moving toward work-family conflict. Um, and you can think about it as, as I think you and I did, sort of when we first started studying this in the 90s, I think we had a um, sort of Pollyanna sort of uh, optimistic view that with all of, Essentially, with birth control in the 70s, with major changes in legislation, major changes in educational attainment, that we were just waiting for everything to catch up. Um, and at least in the um, Western economies, um, in North America and throughout Europe, um, we're now a couple generations past that. So, so we can't just say underrepresentation is, you know, once we get the numbers up, everything's going to be fine. Um, so, so these data were collected right around the time that the understanding, the logic was really shifting from being, primarily we just have to get the women in there to being, wait a minute, this isn't gonna be so easy because what happens at work is inextricably linked to what happens at home. But I do think that that's the, we're at a transition time here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we see that really clearly in the, in the media data. Occupation-type data in here. Um, we have not been looking at what job people choose, um, and these data don't have. And maybe the couple data set does. These data don't have what your husband does. It just has how much your husband, <coughs> husband what your spouse does, has how much they earn, and how much they work. Yeah, but maybe there is something that you can grab on, or you can build upon yeah. literature or maybe example. For example, women who want to be entrepreneurs, they don't have a husband who support them or family, a certain threshold of money coming in, they cannot start to be entrepreneur. entrepreneur. But, and then you can compare that with how many do we have in a country and see over time, if you get the data set of 2012, if there is a progress as well on the activity of it. Yeah, we have not looked at that at all. Um, I there There is a question in here about, um, whether you're, it, they don't use the word entrepreneurial, but whether you work for yourself. Um, but we, we haven't looked at that data except to collapse that into employed. So going back to your logics and the European thing, um, it was an interesting paper, and I'll find it for you somewhere, but that was, that was written about um, status and like maternity policy. Mm -hmm. I think I even shared this, I don't know. But it looked at Europe and the U.S. Uh -huh. and basically made this argument. It's a pretty old paper, so it would be you know, 10, 15 years old or something. But um, it basically made the argument that 
all of these supposed policies to support women, like like long maternity leaves and all these yeah. things, that they actually signal this sort of government reinforcement that women should be at home. And it actually kind of fits with, interestingly, I, I keep thinking of when we've had a number of speakers come in here and talk about um, fertility um, policies, basically like in a lot of European countries, basically how do we get women to stay home and have babies? Well, we're going to give them these long maternity leaves. We're going to make it easier and easier for them, in essence, to be mothers. Right. And that that's kind of like a salient narrative. And so one argument that they made in this paper is that ironically, even though in the United States, well, we're not providing women with as much, you know, we're not facilitating that work-family conflict, right. that we are... Um, that the narrative is not so is not as strongly yeah. that's because women should be at home yeah. having babies or doing that stuff yeah. and so there may also be like it may be really interesting to do something similar to kind of what you did with that other paper in terms of looking at what are what is the gender narrative yeah. in the popular press or right. how that might vary you know yeah. across you know regionally or something like that yeah. Yeah, there's um, or even fertility could be an interesting. I mean, fertility yeah. rates and to the extent to which there's been government policy trying to raise fertility rates, whether or not that might be something that yeah. you know might be part of the logic of um, you know being a mother and working and stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so we don't have we could definitely put fertility rates in. That's one of the country level variables. There's there's some good evidence to what you're talking about. So. Some of the European countries that have very, very good maternity policies are in many ways the most sexist at work. So, so Germany yeah. comes out as a very good example. We're currently, I'm, I'm doing a study um, that I mentioned to you earlier uh, with Ali Feldberg and Beth Humbert, and we are looking at a North American, um, primarily located financial services industry. We're looking in their capital markets division, and so these are high potential people in their capital markets division, a few hundred um, half male, half women. And we've interviewed all of them around um, a number of similar questions to what we're talking about here, but more about their um, uh, life at work. And one of the things that has come up in a number of those interviews by both men and women um, is that they, the people in Canada talk about this maternity leave along the ways you're talking about it you know how do how do employers think about this you know do I really want to put a woman on this you know should leave for a year because they are paid 80% for a year mm. and these are very high earning women so 80% for a year is, is plenty to live on um, it also plays out in the other way in that um, people have the expectation that if you're going to be home for a year then you're just gonna want, your life changes, and you're just gonna wanna stay at home. So in spite of the fact that um, for the Canadian women they could stay home for a year, of all of the women that we talked with, none of them had stayed home for more than three months. Mm -hmm. so, so there's very much this, um, I am not going to um, sort of move into that world. This is one of the things that I sort of actually got changed at HBS. We had this policy that, um, you had to sign, in order to get, as a, as a faculty member, an extra year's leave, as a doctoral student, an extra year on your sort of clock as a doctoral student, um, for childcare, you had to say that you were the primary caretaker. Mm -hmm. and, and this was defined by more than 50% of the care between eight in the morning at five at night, or five in the afternoon. And it, like, it's so silly along so many dimensions. It's like, 
how many children only need care between eight and five? That's the first question. <laughs> how many academics only work between eight and five? That's another question. And who, like, who's keeping the time clock to say who's doing 50% or who's doing 49%, who's doing 51%? And as soon as you say somebody has to commit to being primary, it is almost always going to be the one that has to stay home for a little bit because she happens to be um, the primary food source for this child. So, so there's, um, there's a real problem with that, and we got it switched to you just had to say that you want to, you know, you had a child and you want an extra year for it. And, and some people don't take it, just like the women don't take the full year, but I think there's huge implications around that, especially if it's framed as a fertility issue. As opposed to well, that's a a, I'm just saying the narrative. It's just yeah. you're talking about logics and narrative yeah, and how these things are discussed. Can I just throw out one thing? I'm so sorry to. There's one other thing that we learned in this seminar, which I thought was really interesting, was that there's also this, there's some proposition that there's like a relationship between the fertility po policies, but also the strength of the economy. So like, so like the Italy example, you know what I mean? Right. So just yeah. that's another thing that that yeah. might be worth considering. Yeah, which is why we're putting in some sort of just country level. Yeah, but maybe there are interactions there. Yeah. yeah. Hi, it's a, um, a little off topic, but following on what you said, was is the reason that the women who stayed took a shorter leave because they thought that they would be penalized less, or because they thought that they personally would want to stay home, or that other people would think that they wanted? They, because I'm just thinking that generally my experience of commitment bias, that you know you're not committed, exists. It perhaps gets worse when you have children, but it exists even before you have children in many large organizations that you're more likely to leave, you're more likely to get married at this, not be committed. And, yeah. it, and I'd be curious if it, uh, actually looking at it, if it made any difference to people's ultimate careers, in fact, whether, yeah. they, whether they did the three months or did the year. So nobody does the year, but we, we're going to be able to follow them longitudinally. But, but your question is really interesting. So, so for the people who um, were taking the leave, they talk about it as they just want to get back to work. I mean, they're going to lose. So even if they can keep their salary, they're losing their client relationships. And this is capital markets. They're very, very involved in client relationships. And so they just want to get back to work. So that's the way the women that take the leave talk about it. Um, the way it's talked about by other women and by, by men is that um, it changes other people's perspective on them. But that's not the way the women who were making the decision talk about it, at least in our that's, it's a great question. Um, I just have a few questions for the women you're talking about in Canada. I'm Canadian, and so um, that runs so counter to everything I've ever heard. Um, because I mean, I know many women who take the year. Um, yeah, these are these are okay. like they're essentially an investment okay. banking capital markets. Okay. So yeah, uh, yeah, very very specific slice of like. And then I'm wondering, do you count for um, in Canada? You can assign the maternity leave as paternity leave instead. And so I'm wondering if you would count for that variation. We, we didn't ask about it at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, though. I mean, so so this goes back to the language that um, uh, Hannah's talking about. You can assign it to your spouse. Well, I, I'm right. Assign it, but right. Mm -hmm. But it, but it, but if it's maternity leave that you can give away, that's very different than saying the parents can take childcare leave. I think it's called parental leave, actually. Yeah, we call it parental leave too. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I wanted to note that the, the microfinance stuff is, I've seen a lot of that anecdotally and definitely in, in finance as an industry. Uh, why can't leave some two weeks, for example? Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I don't know whether the perception is that they have to or they or they can't, but there is a, a, a maternity penalty literature probably yes. that talks yep. about some of those things. Yeah. 
But on this issue of um, the length of the of leave, there is a paper that you might want to look at by Blau and Kahn, 2013, mm -hmm. it's an NPR paper if you haven't seen it. It's looking primarily at the U.S., but it does include some international data. And it actually draws um, some conclusions that very long maternity leaves have very negative outcomes for some women in, in terms of their career yeah. over the long term. Yeah, so there's quite a bit of literature that shows time away from work um, for both women and for men, regardless of the reason that they take it, has serious negative implications <coughs> in terms of earning and hours worked. All right, thank you very much for all the great ideas. Thank you.